Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Thank you so much. The, okay, again, this we're like all just in awe and processing and so excited about this surah. So I know every time you always think that you didn't do it justice, but it was incredible. Thank you so much. And we have questions from... Do you want to start us off? Okay. So there's been multiple times in the Qur'an when we have dealt with the issue of when it is not okay to obey your parents. And obviously that's extremely relevant within the historical context because of what Muslims were, what they were about to have to do. But a few nights ago you were talking about um, you were talking about how a relationship with a sheikh is built on deference. Yeah. And it also made me think about Rami shared from an autobiography he was reading on Ibn Ajiba that Ibn Ajiba built a house for his shayuh. So do you have, I mean, do, what do you have to say about the relationship that we should have in, in context when the parent is or the sheikh because I look at those two as very similar relationships um, is passing down and is raising you from a place of, of a monotheistic place or a, a wise place Do you mind paraphrasing or? And Sharif uh, um, is asking, uh, it's a, an important question, the, the relationship of a, of, a, of a teacher to a student is often compared to the relationship of a parent to a child. Um, and the relationship of a, especially a teacher to a disciple uh, is it, it requires deference because without deference the, the student cannot be taught the is and so he's he's asking about the same thing about with parents well if uh, the the extent to which and the um, your your parents are, are educating you. Uh, your parents are your teachers to a certain point in life. I mean, they're um, and there is no there. There's no way that your parents are going to be able to raise you if you don't defer to your parents. Um, but of course, as you said, that this this is on the assumption that your parents are not teaching you to uh, either to ignore God or to do something that is contrary to what God commands. So it, it's not the parents are not ordering you or teaching you to do something haram. Um, and the the relationship of deference is basically it's a presumption. It's that I presume that who I'm deferring to, parent or a teacher, I presume that they have good cause, that they have good reason, and that they have knowledge, and I, that I presume them to be so, and so I suspend my own judgment and defer to them. However, it's a presumption, meaning that I presume this to be the case until proven otherwise. So your obligation to, um, to investigate, to think, to analyze is never suspended. You, you're always 
in all relationships of difference, you're deferring to the point that you say to yourself, okay, I'm with, with a parent, and here's where a teacher and a parent really differ. With a parent, uh, you say, okay, they're ordering me to do something or they're telling me to do something that is wrong and it's not my hawa, it's not, it's not that I just feel it's wrong, it's that I, I, I've done my due diligence and it, I have now reason to respectfully disagree and respectfully say that I'm not going to do what you're, you're asking me to do. And that's the situation like for instance when the, the one we're talking about where they, they tell you not to study with a, with a certain teacher. The, the relationship of a parent as a teacher eventually comes to an end. When that point is, it, it depends. It, it's, uh, um, but eventually it comes to an end. It, it, your parents are not your teachers forever. Uh, your, there, there comes to a point where, but your duty to be respectful and honor them meaning treat them with respect and, and, and make them feel important and valuable uh, remains. That never, that doesn't change. And, and again, we're talking about healthy relationships. We're not talking about abusive parents or, you know, evil parents or the... With, with, a, with a teacher, the entire mentoring relationship is based on difference. It's based on your belief that this teacher is closer to God and is more knowledgeable and that as long as you are being taught, you are saying, I, again, I presume my judgment to be invalid and I defer to their judgment because they are my teacher. Now the 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 in 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 the rules of discipleship is that when you get to the point where that presumption is no longer you're not convinced of that presumption anymore, then then you terminate the relationship. It's not you you don't pick and choose. I mean, I don't know many teachers that will allow you to pick and choose if they're good teachers. But um, you, again, you respectfully and gratefully terminate the relationship. Um, ingratitude is never moral. So, you know, Every teacher that I've had in my life, I'm extremely grateful to. And there are teachers that taught me things that, um, that I moved well beyond. I mean, the, the, the teacher who read with me Hayat al-Sahaba, for instance, um, uh, or the teacher who I memorized Radha Salihin with, you know, um, but they're not alive anymore, but if they were alive, or when they were alive, and I would meet them, I would kiss their hand, and I would, I wouldn't interrupt them, I, if someone asked a question, I wouldn't answer the question in their presence, these are all part of the adab of, of, that you have with your teacher. You know, the fact that, that I can no longer be their student is immaterial to what I owe them in terms of honor and gratitude. And these relational issues are critical for the building of virtue in society. Because Otherwise, then all types of relationships start breaking down. People, teachers no longer want to mentor and students no longer have a mentor. And parents start looking out for number one, you know, uh, as, as we see in the society we live in. You know, a, a, a parent will 
will have no qualms about dating and uh, you know focusing on their on their own life even when it endangers the the welfare of their child i mean um the idea of of sacrifice and so on it's not rewarded and and that's the problem when when that system of virtue breaks down um Yeah, I mean, what Ibn Ajiba, like building a house for his teacher, it's on, um, if you are, you, if you're talking the, the, the way that it should be done, um, yeah, if I if I had money and I saw my teacher needs a car, I would definitely buy them my car, without a second thought. Because what they gave me in knowledge, I cannot repay. And the the worst thing is to appear like a person who has no adab in the hereafter that I was given knowledge and I simply acted like I'm entitled to it. You're not entitled to anything. And you're not entitled to anything. That sense of entitlement and the, the, the gratitude you carry for it's the same gratitude I care for my parents who taught me and took care of me. Uh, the worst thing that human beings do is that they expect gratitude from others, but they don't extend gratitude to others. And that's that's a disease. That's a social disease. It's a social disease. And. You know, and, and that's why we see the same cycle. You know, people treat, when they start, when they get old, they're treated by their kids, not very nicely, um, as they've done with their parents. And that cycle just keeps going on and on and on. It, it, reflecting upon what you owe to other human beings is the beginning of morality. If, if you can't be, if you don't know gratitude to other human beings, you won't know gratitude to God. And it's, it's all a package. Gratitude can't be cut up. You can't say, well, you know, I'm grateful to God, but I, I'm, you know, I, I have, uh, and every human being, the, the most important, anyone, of course, took care of you as a child, you, there is gratitude, but knowledge, ilm, is, is the thing that you should be the most grateful to. There is just, there, there's, and knowledge is not data. Like, you know, it's not like you read, it's not that all of us owe a huge debt of gratitude to Sheikh Google. Uh, because Google teaches you data, not hikmah. Data is just information, it's not knowledge. Yeah, I follow up. Yeah, just very quickly. Because uh, what do you think is our path to reclaiming that because I see, I mean, this this exists both in secular circles with universities in terms of how we treat professors or exists in, in the Islamic realm, whether the teacher is qualified or not, but there's a sense of entitlement when it comes to our teachers. There's a you know, an almost of, it's, it's your job to make it entertaining for me, it's your job to make it sexy for me, it's your job to make it relevant to my life, and, and if I'm not entertained within the first 30 minutes, 
or sorry, if I'm not entertained within the first 30 seconds, then I'm going to move on because this didn't satisfy that itch. And that seems so drastically different from what built us as a civilization. So what what's our, our I mean, it seems more in line with like Montel Fukhur. That, that we boast arrogantly even as, as students. So what's our path forward to reclaiming that tradition and, and honoring knowledge so that it becomes wisdom and doesn't just become arrogance? Uh, you know, the current attitude that pervades society will lead to the crumbling of civilization. There's no, there's no question. Um, because the, uh, I mean, to the extent that it is still maintained, so that teaching still attracts the best minds, um, and the relationship between teachers and students is still sufficiently solid so that experience and knowledge is transmitted and results in creative activity um, to the extent that re that relationship exists you will continue to have civilization to the extent that it breaks down civilization crumbles and it's on the way you know it, it's it just a matter of time before society feels like the impact of that crumbling. Um, now, of course, the, the Islamic civilization, it, it, the, what we are experiencing is, the, it, is um, what, the, what you would experience in a crumbled civilization, where people don't have a real appreciation or real understanding for what role knowledge plays. And the confuse between the knowledge which is necessary for the existence of the values that sustain society. Society is not, in state, not sustained by empirical sciences. The society is not sustained by a good engineer, a good doctor, a good chemist, uh, they perform functions within society. But what builds society is the type of knowledge that produces virtue, social mores, social values. They're not produced by the empiricists. Empiricists are people who perform a function within the society. And that value system has collapsed in Islam. It has collapsed completely for many different reasons, but it has completely collapsed to the extent that we are, if you really come to any Muslim and, and you, you, you interrogate them as to what, what is the role of social sciences, what is the role of the sciences of society? Um, they're utterly confused. They, they're not sure. And they might, you know, they, they, they think that um, a civilization can be built on making good business or making, you know, being a doctor or being an engineer or a... But it, it doesn't gel. And that's why we, we're stuck. That's why, you know, you... The best philosophers in the world are not Muslim. The best sociologists are largely not Muslims. The best ethicists are not Muslim. They, the people that lead the world intellectually are not Muslim. Um, you know, it, we've been absent from the playing field for for a long time. And it, the, you, you reclaim them by, I believe, in the case of Islam, by doing exactly what we're doing, going back to the Quran. I think that what built the civilization in the first play, in the first time is what's going to build the civilization again. And that is why, you know, it. I, I hope it changes, you know, after I'm gone, but 
when I find that the students of uh, innovative approaches to, to the Quran, the, 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 those who study the Quran, not to repeat the taqlid of the classics, not to just repeat what Razi said or what Qurtubi said, that's easy. It's easy for anyone to just sit and say, let me tell you what Razi said or let me tell you what Ghazali said. These are the, 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 the taqlid. But what is much harder is to take all of that and to think of the values that are necessary to rebuild civilization again. And so I'm hoping that someday, maybe after I'm gone, that instead of the students of this being, you know, whatever, less than a hundred, definitely, definitely, it, it will be in the thousands. And uh, then that might be the beginning of the sign that things are going to change in the Islamic civilization. Um, it, you know, if you don't if you don't preserve at least the idea, then all is lost. At least when you preserve the idea, you're maintaining the seed. Yes, the, the seed takes a long time to become a plant, to become a tree. But you need to preserve the seed. And I think that's what we're doing. Um, Building institutions of learning that simply repeat the classics ad nauseum, which is the, 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 the pietistic affectations that so many American Muslims are so fond of. You know, someone that looks like they came from the medieval age, someone that acts like they came from the medieval age, exotic, sort of orientalist, you know, they look like they came from the deserts of Mauritania or the deserts of Morocco or the deserts of Egypt or whatever. You know, just exotic and weird. And then they, oh, wow, you know, we have Ghazali again. That's never going to produce anything. That, that, that will keep Muslims at the, at the uh, footstool of humanity, uh, backwards and retarded. I think of anyone in particular. Do go next? Uh, just a quick one, thank you very much, Chef. Um, I know you mentioned Luqman and Miriam are the only two surahs that are mentioned after someone who is not a prophet. Of course, Miriam. Uh, no, debate, but yeah. um, they're the only two surahs named after givers. I just when we were going through the through the halaqa, I thought there could be a deeper connection. Of course, you have here Luqman and his son, but in Surah Miriam, so much of Surah Miriam is about parents and children. Mm. Zachariah and Yahya, Zachariah and Miriam, Miriam and Isa, Ibrahim and the father. Um, you have a Miriam, Ibrahim saying, Ya Abati, Ya Abati, Ya Abati, Ya Bunay, Ya Bunay, Ya Bunay. So, yeah, just that connection there. You know, Miriam was all about yeah. rebellious, building a society of rebellious women, because that's what you need to build a civilization. Could this be a society of respectful but rebellious sons and daughters? Oh, I'm just reading that. It's just a thought. No, it's actually really interesting. I can didn't you, think of can it. You repeat that for yeah, what Joe's saying is that there, there's a very interesting problem because the, these are two surahs, Maryam and and Luqman, um, that are named not after. I mean, human beings were not prophets, proper names, and um, and Maryam. So much of the surah Maryam is about parenthood and and the. Uh, that relationship between the parent and the offspring and and of course Surat Maryam then focuses on the role of of, of women um, and then here we we have the, the the father who's teaching the child to be reverent but not uh, not an intellectual zombie, you know, you know, to, to, to actually not obey if, if it involves disobeying God. 
And that's a really interesting parallel. I didn't think of that, but I, it, it's really worth pursuing and developing. Um, because it, it is significant that these two surahs take us to, force us to reflect on that theme of generational, generational continuity. I mean, it's, it's a generation passing on to another generation, but passing a set of values and, and what's, oh, what's so fascinating about these two surahs is how the parent and child speak to each other and interact with each other. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting theme. And the commentary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, my question is about uh, when we first get introduced to Luqman and then the first thing that he tells his son and then it's followed by verses 14 and 15 which seems to be now the voice of God mm -hmm. speaking and then you go back to the Quran. Right. I mean, what, like that interlude, what, like, what, what, I mean, what it, sense it is, it is, it is, yeah, no, Romney is asking about uh, something that sort of, uh, um, uh, I alluded to in, in, in passing, um, that when Luqman is first introduced and then Luqman, it, it says, Luqman is speaking to his son, and then what interjects is God's voice, because God is saying, who, who associates partners with me, and then it goes back to the voice of Luqman, and it's as if the voice of, of God and Luqman, when it, when it comes to this question of gratitude and worshiping God, are... Um, um, melt upon each other. They, they're sort of they, 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 uh, What is the word I'm looking for? They um, dissolve, merge, merge into one another. Yeah, merge into one another. Um, and um, what is it? And what, um, which I mean, of course, some commentators say, you know, is this is an indication that this conversation or this 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 discourse between Luqman and his son um, is reported figuratively by God, that it is, it is not what actually takes place. Because some, some people said that, they, that Luqman's son was not a believer, was a kafir. And that Luqman gives him this, keeps advising him and teaching him until he eventually becomes a believer. Um, but other commentators said, no, this is too literal. What, what God wants you to reflect on the the interaction for a point, not for the history. It's not an actual historical incident that you should think about whether it historically took place or not. But I think that the the most important significance for that merging of the voices is that. Luqman starts out with al-hikmah and when, when he tells his son to that al-shirq zulmun azim, that is a great injustice, and then starts talking about the relationship between 
reverence and obedience. Uh, the voice of God comes through Luqman's Hikmah. And I've always taken this to, to be a much larger point, and that is Al-Hikmah is from God. That although we, and this is what, the nature of virtue itself, that when when someone combines ilm and ihsan to think through the most beautiful position, the most virtuous position, um, the voice that comes through is an inspiration from God. There was a teacher, I forgot who it was now, who used to say when he would teach us halakas, I learn from what I teach you as much as you learn. Meaning that he's often surprised by what comes out of his mouth as much as his students are. And he's often educated by it as much as his students are. And I think that the nature of wisdom is like that. It's literally a gift from Allah. And 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 that merging of the divine voice is not revelation, but it's a gift. It's an act of grace that, that Allah gives us. And that is precisely why gratitude for someone to say, I have wisdom, but I'm not grateful, to me is, an, is, a, is a contradiction in terms. It, it, Wisdom is a gift given to humanity, and it is, it is a divine gift. Um, yeah, anyway, that's how I've always taken it. parents <laughs> whose students or our children will be exposed to your teaching and the generosity of you sharing the wisdom that God has given you I extend my gratitude oh, thank you and also for the on behalf of the reverted ones that are born again Muslim oh, I certainly you. appreciate everything that you do for us uh, my question is on the number 17, uh, on the notion of the Amrad al maruf and Nayan al munka And knowing that the Shi'i actually puts this as um, two of the principal on the Furu al yeah. um, One is, is that the genesis of those ideas, the notions that was then brought into Shia? And more importantly, are there any etiquettes in actually enforcing those um, as just ordinary people? Because we see a lot of um, situations right now in Iran that because of the severe um, repression, you know, under the name of, unfortunately, religion, that um, people are asked to be engaged in this, and then you see a lot of women particularly being harassed for their yeah. lack of conduct on hijab and different mm -hmm. things. Um, the question is, um, what are the etiquettes? And even more um, probably practical is perhaps in, in just um, healthy relationship um, for, let's say, uh, parents and adult children, in which in most cases adult children uh, are now know more than the parents do, what would be the etiquette if they were to Amr al-Ma'ruf or even in, in terms of peers and colleagues um, at the expense of um, not to damage collegial relationship, mm -hmm. um, how far and in what terms these things can happen. Can you repeat the question for 
Yeah, the, the question is uh, the, the important question about the the etiquette of, I mean, really the, the rules for enjoining the good and forbidding the evil because it, without, without the further moral elucidation as to how to go about or what are the parameters what are the boundaries for enjoining the good and forbidding the evil? Um, uh, it, it, then you could have a lot of injustice committed. So, you know, people could hurt other people in the name of trying to do what is good and forbid what's evil. Um, and, um, and, you know, that question, of course, comes up with when, when you talk about children and parents, when you talk about uh, relations of society. So the example that Parveen gave, um, uh, which is in Iran and which for for a long time was in Saudi. I'm not sure what happens in Saudi now, but where uh, women are are harassed because of their uh, head covering, or you know, and that's taken as Amr Maruf and Nehal Munkar and. And of course, so then women are bearing the brunt of the of of that dynamic. And w one is that uh, there is a lot written in the Islamic tradition about this. I mean, a, a great deal. And it's um, one of the fields again that, unfortunately, has been ignored. Partly because the, the the irony is that the intellects of those who were writing in in various periods in Islamic history was far more sophisticated than the intellects of those who were who are studying their writings later on, and that that creates um, so that so people who are you know study they 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 often confuse they, they they don't understand what what they're reading and they don't understand the subtle distinctions are being made and they don't but first i want to say that keep in mind that the first thing about al-amr ma'ruf al-munkar is that it is not about enforcement first it is about a normative command, meaning what you must be engaged in intellectually and morally. So the, the first thing is that when it says Al-Amr Al-Ma'roof Al-Ni'ar Al-Munkar is to know what is Ma'roof and to know what is Munkar. So you are constantly, it's, so it's the first uh, uh, principle is that you cannot be oblivious. You cannot be neutral. You cannot be disinterested. You cannot be apathetic. You make it a, a, a personal quest to know what is good and what is bad. First. Second, your first obligation after the obligation to study and inquire and learn is not Amrul Ghair Bil Maruf wa Nahil Ghair Anil Munkar, but Amrul Nafs Bil Maruf wa Nahil Nafs Anil Munkar. So your the first rule is that your obligation is not to command others to do what is good and to forbid others from doing what, but your your the, the first it's inside, because a lot of people hear Amr Maruf and Al Munkar and they think that oh well you know it, it's it, it, no it's it, it's all outward it's not outward it's first inward, it, because remember. It is a huge sin and a huge act of hypocrisy to order someone to do something that you yourself 
do not do, or for you to act on the presumption of knowledge that you don't have, or that to, for you to act on the presumption of hikmah that you don't have. So before you say something to someone, think as a parent you are obligated and you must, you know, go, you must always think, well, relative to my child, I know more, and this is my obligation, and this is my duty, what can I do? Even if I'm not sure I know enough, I, I have to act on it. But, and same thing if you are a commander in an army. You know, you are duty-bound to order your soldiers, but other than these positional situations where you have a taklif to command, assuming the right to command while if you assume and your assumption is an act of usurpation, that's haram that you're going to be held responsible for. So if I, vis-a-vis, -vis, now there are some people who believe that they have the right to command their, their wives, for instance. I'm not one of those people. I don't believe that you have the right to command your wife. Because she is an adult, just like you, she has an intellect, you have an intellect. And therefore, before I say anything to my wife, I must think once and twice and three and four and five and six and ten times because I know if I command her to do something and Allah knows that in my heart is hypocrisy or that I spoke without knowledge or that I, uh, I lack the hikmah and I lack the due diligence in searching for the hikmah, I, the sin I incur is far greater than the sin of keeping silent. So this is, then, so beyond, now we get beyond that, then we get into the rules of the, there, are, there is the morality of enforcement. The rules, now, first, do you have the right to enforce? If the right to enforce are limited by by uh, positions, like you know, a judge in in their position, a commander in position, a sahib amal, someone who owns a business and then has people who answer it, and so on. But these are all positional situations, and they have certain rules that apply to them. But if you have no, if you don't fall within these categories, you don't have a rule, to, you have a right to enforce. You, all you have is a right to give nasiha. If you give nasiha, you must also be willing to receive nasiha. It, it's, not, it's not one way. Now, if you give nasiha, you must buy, abide by the ethics of nasiha. Advice. Nasiha's uh, no, advice, yeah. So you cannot embarrass, your, your advice cannot cause more damage than it, it, it solves. Your advice cannot cause confusion. Confusion, so if it, you bear the, the liability, if your advice is confusing because you are not articulate or because you don't have sufficient knowledge, so, it is not as simple as, okay, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go gung-ho and, 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 and go around telling people. It, it, it is, if you, the vast majority of people are not qualified to be teachers, and the vast majority of people are not good. So if, you know, if you're a parent, you have a defined role. If you're, uh, someone answers to you in a job, you have a defined role. If you're a judge, you have a defined role. The vast majority of people, they're, they, they're honorable ma'rufa al-nihaan al-munkar, 
is a moral exploration that is self-reflective. And, and it is sufficient to be self-reflective so if they're told to do something wrong, they can be aware that this is wrong and refuse to do it, if they're told by someone other. But it doesn't mean that they tell others what to do. And this is, extends to the issue of hijab. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't believe the state has a right, although, of course, the, the modern jurists who believe that the, given the state that jurisdiction, um, that's a big issue. But anyway, I don't believe the state has a right to, to enforce that rule of modesty, the issue of hijab. The al awra al mughallaza is something else. The the um, it? basically the obscenity, like you know, immodesty that's obscene, like you know, someone wants to walk nude in the street, then yeah, the state has a right to intervene. But that type where showing hair or not showing hair, I don't believe the state has a right to enforce it, and. If the state has a, doesn't have a right to enforce it, any average person who uh, who just assumes that role, it's and that's why so much of hikmah is based on humility. Humility. I mean, I listen. Put it put it this way. I've spent I don't know now how many years reading. All the books that I've read in Sharia, all the books, and yet I actually can't rem. I I don't think I've ever entered an Islamic center or a mosque and corrected anyone or told anyone what to do. I don't think I've ever done it once. And. Yeah, I, I, you know, I could see all time, but it's precisely because I've all that reading. When I see most people do most things, it is the long journey with knowledge makes me think. Well, maybe, maybe they're not any of the Sunni mazhabs. Maybe they're not any of the Shia mazhabs. Maybe they're not anybody. Maybe they're one of the mazhabs that have gone extinct. Maybe they're this, maybe they're that. I, you know, my mind starts, okay, you know, how do I know that this person who's doing this or doing that? And even when I know for sure that what they're doing is wrong, I start calculating, well, are my intentions pure? Do, do I, am I going to get a, a high from telling someone something? Uh, you know, do I know that I will do more good than harm? Do I, I, and by the time I think of all the different things, halos. So I'm just, I, I, it, it is, I'm, I'm amazed at people that step in a mosque and start telling people how to do this and how to do that and so I'm just amazed, I'm a, and, I, and I'm not an exception. I mean, all the people that I know that have taken the same journey with knowledge end up exactly where I am. Uh, you, you, frankly, you often not you don't say anything until you're asked, and when you're asked, you are not exactly thrilled to. To instruct, uh, you, you start thinking of the, all the responsibility that you're bearing, and you discharge your obligation. Yes, you do, but you don't do it with a lot of pomp, and and these are the ethics of of knowledge. This is what this is what knowledge is about. Um, this is what Amr ibn Ma'roof and Nahyan al-Munkar that is inward is about. You, when, 
by the time you you see all the ways that you are faulty and all this your sins and all your failures you're so embarrassed to instruct anyone about anything um you know you're just saying god please don't don't treat me as a hypocrite that that's all you have energy for and so and i think that is again how where does this come from this is comes from the way we raise our children. When we teach our children that this is a very important knowledge, that this is your entire soul at stake, that you know you, you must take this very seriously. This type of adab becomes natural. When we teach them that you know this is just extracurricular stuff you do on your extra time as a pastime then they do all the stuff that we see Muslims do these days where you know Islam becomes just like a, a make-belief world um, not not re real values not real virtues not a real philosophy Alhamdulillah you know um I want to take this moment just to express my gratitude because I feel that um, people who know me know that I started this journey when I was 27 and I often have told people close that that the Sheikh re-raised me, you know, as my teacher and, you know, my, my friend, my partner, my... But, you know, like I've seen, I've witnessed so much of like his personal example has been so powerful for me learning because I felt I had to be re-raised and I had to start from the beginning. And when I hear like this message, I mean, I, I pray that all of us can follow you on this journey, but I also want to say that if you can start at the age of 27 and be re-raised and find your path through this knowledge, through this methodology, um, and, and transform, which I feel like I was truly given the gift to take that path and that journey. People who knew, you know, no one here knew me at that age, but if you knew me at that age, you would have met a very different person. And I, I'm so grateful for where I am today. And, and just like, when I hear you say this again, it's like it just really brings it home. And so also for people who are watching and you know, like Parveen, you know, to say thank you to be, you know, like a revert and a born again. I mean, it's like this is a path open for everyone, no matter your age. So thank you for that. And I think this is the perfect place to, to end. We're, we're past the time, but that was a really wonderful question. Thank you so much for asking it. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. And, and may we all be able to reach wisdom, inshallah. So thank you. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. And we hope to see you guys on Tuesday, inshallah. Have a wonderful weekend. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.